As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Russia, the largest country in the world and the primary belligerent in what may prove to be the most consequential conflict of this century. From the get-go, I want to stress that I, like almost every armchair general on the internet, am woefully underqualified to speak about the details of the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. However, this is a conflict that more than any that came before it is being fought just as hard with economics as it is with tanks and fighter jets. And from that angle, we can learn a lot about a country that by many metrics is absolutely terrifying, but by many others is something else entirely. As all of us have been doom-binging the latest updates of the situation in the Ukraine, there is a soundbite that we have been fed over and over again, which is that despite Russia's vast size, immense resource wealth and large population, its economy is comparatively kind of pathetic. Its national output has been compared in size to American states like Texas and Florida, which is probably a bit disingenuous if for no other reason than the economy of Texas is massive. But it also sends the wrong message because the economy of Texas is, by almost every other metric, better than Russia's. It's strange to call the 11th largest economy in the world inadequate. But it's not the headline figures that tell the full story as much as it's the squandered opportunities. Had a few things been done differently over the past three decades, there is no reason to expect that Russia couldn't be one of the wealthiest, most prosperous nations in the world today. This was a country that in less than 10 years grew its output by over 800%. It had a population that was ready to embrace the free market and work their butts off to build a better future for themselves. And it had a world that, by and large, wanted it to do well to avoid regressing back into the Cold War. So, what happened? Just how large and powerful is Russia's economy today? What stopped the growth it was experiencing in the early 2000s? And finally, is it in a position where it can justify a conflict as costly as the one it just got itself into? As always, once we've done all of that, we can put Russia on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard. Yeah, this is going to be another country I'm not allowed to travel to for a while again. Okay, so the economy of Russia as we know it today started at the end of 1991, after the Soviet Union was officially dissolved and the Russian Federation was born out of its ashes, alongside Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Estonia, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Latvia, Lithuania, Moldova, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Ukraine. The second most powerful entity in the world at the time disappearing effectively overnight left a very serious power vacuum. After living through a failed coup attempt in 1989, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the USSR, wasn't overly keen in sticking around as a public figure any longer than he needed to. That left Boris Yeltsin, a former high-ranking Soviet politician, as the singular ruler of the new Russian Federation. While the West was thrilled that the Soviet Union, their arch-nemesis for the better part of half a century, was gone, they were in many ways more scared of Russia at this time than they were in the years before. This represented the single most dramatic shift of power in world history. Even ignoring the humanitarian crisis of millions of people not sure where they should go to work or where they should get food or how their new country was supposed to operate, the rest of the world was wrestling with a potentially bigger issue, which was that this fragile state had a stockpile of thousands of uh, spicy fireworks and it could easily just regress back into another communist adversary. 
Yeltsin was, at the end of the day, a former Soviet politician, so there was no reason to expect that he couldn't just revert the country back to a Soviet system of government. Seeing this potential threat and wanting to smooth out the situation as much as possible, a plan was put in place based off a handbook published by the International Monetary Fund and other international financial institutions. Here's a question for you. Let's say you have a country that is a complete failure. The government is gone, the currency no longer exists, people don't know who owns what, basically everything is starting from zero. What do you do? Well, luckily some very smart people thought of exactly what to do, which is why we have the Washington Consensus, so named because it was formulated by the kinds of institutions that have their offices in Washington DC. The Washington Consensus is basically the IKEA instruction book you use when you are trying to build a national economy from nothing but flat pack components, and it has 10 basic instructions. Fiscal policy discipline, with avoidance of large fiscal debts relative to GDP, redirection of public spending from subsidies, especially indiscriminate subsidies, towards broad-based provision of pro-growth, pro-poor services like primary education, primary healthcare and infrastructure investment, tax reform, broadening the tax base and adopting moderate marginal tax rates, interest rates that are market-determined and positive, but moderate in real terms, competitive exchange rates, trade liberalisation, the liberalisation of imports with a particular emphasis on elimination of quantitative restrictions like quotas, licensing and tariffs, liberalisation of inward foreign direct investment, privatisation of state enterprises, deregulation and legal security for property rights. Basically, put these things in place and you should have an economy. Now, some of these were easier to implement than others. Trade liberalisation, for example, started off slow between its former Soviet peers, but eventually Russia started trading its raw materials with the rest of the world. It also implemented a new currency in 1992, which it made exchangeable for the old Soviet ruble that came before it. A funny little side note was that the one ruble coin, worth less than one American cent at the time, was practically identical in size and weight to the five Swiss franc coin, which led to many Russians taking bags of these coins to hundreds of Swiss vending machines and buying trucks full of snacks that they would take back to Russia. I guess it didn't take them too long to embrace capitalism after all. That's not very important, but it is very funny. What was very important was the point about the privatisation of state enterprises. You might think, given examples like China, that opening up to international trade and embracing the free market was something of a cheat code to guarantee economic growth, at least in the short term. Unfortunately, that didn't really play out in Russia, and in the decade following the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia's GDP actually more than halved. The biggest reason for this was the botched privatisation of the nation's industries. In the Soviet Union, all industry was owned by the state, but the Washington Consensus calls for value-adding industries to be privatised. There are two reasons for this recommendation. The first is that it establishes a free market. You can't reform your economy on the foundation of capitalism if all of the biggest industries in the nation are controlled by the state. The second reason for this recommendation is because it can make the country a lot of money in a very short space of time. Governments all over the world sell public assets off to free up cash and former communist nations theoretically have the most to sell off. Think of this as generating seed capital to launch a new business venture, only instead of it being a company, it's an entire country. Russia did have a lot of valuable industries, natural resource extraction being the big one, but there was also telecommunications, utilities and manufacturing. The only question became, who should this go to? The logical answer would be the highest bidder, but there are some problems with this. 
At the time, the highest bidder would have been companies from the West, and it was understandable that the new Russian Federation wasn't ready to stomach an American company controlling their oil fields just yet. So most of these assets got sold off internally. The problem was that people emerging from a failed socialist state normally aren't flush with the kind of cash needed to make realistic bids on pieces of national infrastructure. The corruption that followed almost cemented Russia's fate for the following decades. Officials in charge of dishing out the nation's industries were paid off to award factories and mines to well-connected individuals, many times themselves, a family member, or whoever gave them the best bribe. This not only left major industries in the hands of a very small number of very corrupt people, but it also meant that the country didn't raise nearly as much revenue as it could have had this privatisation process been handled more fairly. These well-connected individuals, or oligarchs as they came to be known, not only ran these industries poorly, but they also took almost all of the money that they made from their dodgy operations and invested it abroad. This process was assisted by the Russian government's insistence on maintaining a high foreign exchange rate. Any money made within Russia by the oligarchs could be transferred to American dollars, or more commonly British pounds, at a rate higher than the free market would normally dictate. The Russian government paid a lot of money to maintain this exchange rate, but all it really did was help wealthy and corrupt Russian businessmen buy flats and football teams in countries that they thought were worth investing in. This capital flight meant that the government had a hard time raising money and had to rely on continued international borrowing. This all came to a head in 1998, when a failed war in Chechnya and the Asian financial crisis combined to give the new Russian Federation its first economic crisis. The government was no longer able to pay its debts, and the exchange rate fell sharply. Mismanaged industries were failing to attract foreign or domestic buyers, and companies weren't even able to make payments to their staff, leading to widespread workers' rights across the country. Foreign investors fled the country, further driving down asset markets and causing a run on the reserves of the Russian Central Bank. The World Bank and the International Monetary Fund tried to intervene with an injection of $22 billion. These institutions were happy to provide support, not only because that's their core function, but also because nobody wanted this financial turmoil to push Russia back towards Soviet-style socialism. Unfortunately, and perhaps to nobody's surprise, it was later revealed that as much as $5 billion of that injection were stolen by connected officials as soon as the money entered Russia. But this sharp decline after a rather disappointing decade was something of a springboard for the Russian turnaround. Russian luck started to turn around after this crash for a few reasons. The first was that they didn't have that much further to fall. But on a more serious note, the currency lost 80% of its value practically overnight, which is terrible for the economy at large, but did allow for debts and unpaid wages to be paid back with relative ease. Russia was also a great beneficiary of the steady increase in oil prices that would be felt over the following decade. It was at this time that one Vladimir Putin would become president, succeeding Boris Yeltsin, who had fallen sick and handed the reins to his then Prime Minister. The new president oversaw a series of reforms that, in fairness, did do a lot of good for the economy, but his first order of business was put into action on the 31st of December 1999, and it was titled, On Guarantees for the Former President of the Russian Federation and the Members of His Family. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, 
And of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This ensured that corruption charges against the outgoing president and his relatives would not be pursued. Basically, it was a presidential pardon for the ex-president's corruption scandal, which conveniently also happened to involve Putin himself. Yeah, not off to a great start. Anyway, despite continued corruption, Russia did do well for itself over the next decade. Large industries became increasingly consolidated, but that meant that they were able to compete with their larger international rivals. The domestic market was the real winner though. For the first time ever, the Russian people had access to a financial system similar to what we take for granted in the West. The people were able to borrow money, find formal jobs and use this income to support genuine businesses in the country itself. Yes, an enormous amount of wealth was still being disproportionately and perhaps even unfairly distributed to a very small group of people. But let's be honest with ourselves, it's not like that doesn't happen in our own economies, right? That's just part of being a free market economy. Well, more on that later. Russia also managed to get through the global financial crisis of 2008 relatively unscathed. Its banks were so new and unsophisticated that they avoided most of the problems caused by advanced financial instruments. They were, however, hit temporarily by the rapid decline in oil prices at the time. Nevertheless, by 2013, strong growth had resumed and the economy was more than 10 times larger than it was at the lows of the 1990 financial crisis. The new president was certainly controversial, but sometimes a struggling nation needs strong leadership to get it headed in the right direction. The problem was primarily who this prosperity went to serve, a point that became particularly apparent in 2014 with the invasion of Crimea. Following the shocking actions taken by the Russian government, the United States, the European Union, Australia, Canada and Japan imposed sanctions on Russia. These sanctions did three things. They put a ban on the provision of technology for oil and gas extraction. They put limits on travel for international Russian citizens who were close to President Putin, aka the oligarchs, and it banned the provision of credits to Russian oil companies and state banks. That last one was the big one. If state banks and oil companies couldn't raise money, they couldn't lend money, which in theory should starve the Russian state of the resources needed to continue hostilities. In practice, it really didn't do too much, for a couple of reasons. They weren't particularly harsh, and they were rolled back pretty quickly after the fact. Russia was also more or less ready for them. Decades of selling oil and gas internationally meant that Russia had huge foreign currency reserves. Almost all oil is traded in American dollars, which meant that the Russian government and Russian businesses were easily able to stockpile the world reserve currency to keep on hand for a rainy day. The nation did need to use some of these reserves and the value of the ruble did drop in international markets, but in many ways this was kind of a good thing for export businesses in Russia because a devalued domestic currency made them more competitive in international markets. That wasn't to say that there were no consequences. The economy did shrink and the country experienced high levels of inflation as imported goods were banned, meaning supplies of everything from food to medicine was restricted to what could be produced locally. This period was not great for the average Russian. But the thing is, the decision makers didn't care. Russia is potentially the most unequal country in the world. And I know I've said that about a few places, but here's the thing. We use a measurement called the Gini coefficient to measure inequality. This can either be used to measure income inequality, as in my boss earns three times as much as I do, or wealth inequality, as in my boss has three houses and drives a car worth more than the apartment I share with four other broke students. In the case of Russia, we will be looking at wealth inequality. 
The Gini coefficient ranks economies on a scale of 0 to 1 or 0 to 100 depending on who you ask. 0 represents perfect equality, everyone has exactly the same amount of wealth. And 100 means that all the wealth in a country is controlled by a single person and everyone else has nothing. According to the World Bank, Russia has a wealth genie of 37.5, which is not great, not terrible. It's certainly better than the United States, 41.4, and far from South Africa's top spot at 63. The problem is that these figures are only constructed using the data that the World Bank has access to. The financial elite of Russia, all the way up to the president himself, have been exposed time and time again for moving money all over the world in order to hide and protect their true wealth. Studies from institutions such as Credit Suisse have theorised that if this money was moved back and counted within Russia, then the country would comfortably be the most unequal in the world. What this meant was that the people with the money and power to influence policy decisions were not the one being hit by these sanctions. Russian banks that were dry on cash could just tap foreign currency reserves and redirect lending away from regular consumers, all while those regular citizens struggled to find food and build a future in a failing state. In a regular democracy, this would have been the end of the powers that be. But of course, Russia hasn't really ever been a real democracy. In a place like Australia or America, you hold on to power by keeping the voting population happy. Yes, there are political donations, and yes, there are news networks that can influence these outcomes, but it still all comes down to the votes. In a place like Russia, you hold on to power by appeasing the same group of people that squirmed and bribed their way into owning the major industries of the nation. This leads us to the Russia of about three weeks ago, the country that had made itself a lot of money by selling a lot of oil and gas to a lot of countries that were beholden to their natural resource wealth. A country that was run by a very small group of people for the benefit of a very small group of people. A country that had a larger war chest of foreign reserves than it did even back in 2014, and a country that saw very little in the way of consequences for its past acts of aggression. The only thing left to see now is if this new wave of sanctions will be enough to finally get them to regret their decisions. Something that we will be trying to explore in next week's video. But for now, it's time to put Russia on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard. Starting as always with size, Russia currently has a GDP of 1.48 trillion US dollars. This will almost certainly fall dramatically in coming years as sanctions and a costly war hit their economy's bottom line, but for now it's still the 11th largest economy in the world and it gets an 8 out of 10. Russia has a GDP per capita of just over 10,000 US dollars. This is down significantly from its peak of $16,000 in 2013, and for reference, this figure is putting it behind China, which has a GDP per capita of $10,500. It gets a 5 out of 10. Growth has been underwhelming, especially when compared to the 2000s when it genuinely looked like Russia could be a real modern economic superpower. But corruption, mismanagement and warmongering are rarely a recipe for economic success, and that's clear to see in an economy that despite all of its natural resource advantages has shrunk over the past decade. It gets a 0 out of 10. Stability and confidence. Well, even before these latest hostilities, you would only ever want to do business in Russia if you really needed to do business in Russia. The sovereign risk of an openly hostile nation is just not conducive to business, and given the actions of the nation in the past two weeks, it's going to be a pariah on the world stage for a long time to come. 0 out of 10. Finally, industry. Russia has an abundance of natural resources and not much else going for it. 
most businesses that do well for themselves within Russia look to leave as quickly as possible to go to the less risky and more accommodating business environments of Europe and North America. It gets a 3 out of 10. Altogether, this gives Russia an average score of 3.2 out of 10, which puts it in line with other economic success stories like Cyprus and El Salvador. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.